When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. What's up, family? Thank you for tuning in to the Dream Nation podcast. My name is Casanova. I'll be your host, and I'm excited to be bringing to you entrepreneurs, thought leaders, and trailblazers from around the world. Stay locked in with us because we're about to go on a journey that will change your life. What's up, Dream Builder? We are back again. In today's episode, I am so excited and grateful to be bringing to you one of the, I would like to say, mad scientists, right? And the only reason why I say that, let me let me preface it by saying, not mad in a bad way, but I've seen your TED Talk, I've seen uh, the speeches that you've given, and you have a mind of gold, right? And so without further ado, please help me in welcoming my sister, Miss Dory Clark, to the show. Dory, you want to go ahead and say what's up to Dream Nation? Casanova, thank you. And Dream Nation, I am so happy to be here chatting with you and spending time. Let's do it. Let's do it. Now, I, I'm, I'm the other reason what most people, once they research you, they'll see why I was also excited is because when I was reading anything on your bio, I seen Duke come up. And everybody who watches or, or listens to the show, they know how big of a Duke fan I am. And we talked about that off air. But one of the things to, to always break into someone's story, what I like to do is I like to compare us as entrepreneurs, thought leaders, change makers to superheroes. And the reason being is because you're constantly flying around the world. You're putting on your cape and you're trying to solve some of the world's biggest problems. So for a lot of people who've seen your TED Talk or they've seen that you've been featured on Newsweek or any of these other and they see you're an adjunct professor at Duke, one of the highest um, universities, but they see you as this superwoman, this S on the chest, right? Because they're only seeing you in the online world. So my question is, when the cameras are off, right, and the lights are all off, take us behind the scenes and tell us when it comes to superwoman, who is Dory Clark's Lois Lane? Oh, I love, I love that question. Well, you know, when it comes to having people in your corner, I would say a couple of, uh, of, of sidekicks that are especially important to me. I mean, of course, probably like everybody, but my mom is, uh, is really great and has always been just incredibly supportive of, of what I do. And also I, one of the drums that I like to beat is that it's really important to have a strong professional community in your life. I mean, you want to have people that are cheerleaders no matter what, but Having, you know, really good friends and colleagues who are in the same business as you matters a lot because you want to have an objective view about things, you know, where you can ask kind of intimate questions about like, what should you be charging for, you know, for engagements and things like that? Like, what are the things that 
that are sensitive enough that strangers wouldn't necessarily talk about them, but you need that behind the scenes information. And so um, I have a, a really good friend and business partner named Alyssa Cohn, and uh, we often, you know, talk talk shop, talk, talk business, and in addition are really great friends. So I value those relationships a lot. Yeah, relationships are everything. And a lot of times they'll get you in the rooms, as I always say, that degrees can never could, right? Yeah. Uh, and I said could never could, but we're going to let that one go. So let's take it back, though. And, and, and let's add, like how for you, now you're in New York City, as you told me, you know, you go down to Duke and you teach some executive programs. But what was your background like growing up? Were you always entrepreneurial minded? Did you come from a small city and you had to break out on your own? What did that look like for Dory? Well, I grew up in a small town in North Carolina, and I, I was—I uh, wanted to be entrepreneurial, but I, I, and, pro- and probably if I was a, l- a little more um, clever, I could have figured it out. But there were there were a lot of you know kind of metaphorical doors slammed in your face. Like I, when I was a little kid, I was like, "Oh, I want to start a business. I want to you know do this and this and this." I was very excited about that idea. And my parents were like, "Um, you need a permit for that." Like, no, like kids can't do that. And I was I was so mad. I uh, you know the internet was was not a thing. Uh, having an internet business would have been probably pretty cool. But uh, yeah, I just felt like my entrepreneurial ambitions were stymied. And mostly what that meant was that I just hated being a kid. I felt super like my civil rights were being violated, which they are, you know, children have no civil rights. <laughs> and so you just right. have to wait until you get older. And it's like, oh, you know, ridiculous. So I tried to book it out of there as soon as I could. So when I was 14, I wheedled my way into an early college entrance program at Mary Baldwin University in Virginia. So I was able to leave, leave my little town and, and kind of begin to get on with my life. Yeah, gotcha. So when you first started to now you're in college at 14. Yeah, which is which is crazy in itself. Right. That shows how much of a a superhuman that you are. Right. In a great way. But 14. And now when you graduate, are you 18 years old when you graduate college? I was. Yeah, I was 18 when I graduated. And then I went right into graduate school because, um, you know, it's a little weird to enter the professional workforce when you're when you're 18. I still felt a little a little young, so I'm like, you know, I'll keep up with the school thing for a bit. So I uh, got a master's degree in theological studies uh, from the time that I was 18 to, to 20. Yeah. So talk to me about from the time that you're 14 to 18, do you have the support of your parents? Um, as it, because now the, the, the baby girl's going off. She's on her own, right? She's in a whole nother state. And it's like, and then sometimes, especially when you come, grew up in a small town, sometimes it could feel like that you think that, you know, you're better than others, right? Especially when you accomplish what you've accomplished. Did you feel like you had to deal with that pressure growing up or was it everyone just like, Hey, go off, do your thing. And, and we wish you the best of luck. Yeah. I mean, fortunately, my, uh, I was not in a circumstance where there was that issue going on. The town that I grew up in was a little bit unusual because it wasn't like a little town where everybody, everybody was from that town. It was a golf resort. And so most of the people had moved to the town from other places because they like to play golf. Uh, So it was a fairly highly educated community, albeit a tiny one. And so uh, it was expected and praised that one would go on and, uh, and get a good education. Got it. Wait, it just so I only know one golf resort, which I was there last year in North Carolina. That that it describes it was it Pinehurst. 
Of course, it was Pinehurst. Yep, you got it. Yeah. You got it, Casanova. <laughs> yeah, so last year I actually got invited to a uh, men's kind of retreat getaway. It was a, a entrepreneurial one, and it was an experience of, of what you would call it. And so it was actually held there. So uh, we got to golf on a course. We golfed on three courses. I know the one that was the most prestigious was like golf number two. Or, yes, or the course Pinehurst number two. number two is considered one of the preeminent golf courses in the world. So you have yeah. you have. T- Touched greatness, my man. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was a lot of fun, right? A lot of experience. You got, you know, some of the best training. So, yeah, it's, it's definitely, we have a lot of connections. And I was just telling you how we'll be in Duke next month. Um, but, uh, yeah, so, okay, so now you, why theological studies? Um, what what was it about that that, that kind of pulled you in? Well, I had a couple of reasons that I was interested in that. The first one was that I was always, uh, you know, a fairly metaphysical person, and I had been a philosophy major as an undergraduate, and I wanted to kind of continue studying things in that vein, and so theology seemed like a natural extension uh, for me. The second reason was I had also been very interested in politics and advocacy, and so I was... um, very interested in understanding a little bit more about um about save big on brunch for mom all in the kroger app get half gallons of delicious kroger milk for 129 each then get flavorful tyson natural boneless chicken breasts for 249 a pound all with your card and a digital coupon shop these deals at your local kroger today or tap the screen now to download the kroger app to save big today kroger fresh for everyone Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Sort of organizations like uh, the Christian Coalition and the Promise Keepers that at the time were very active in American political life. And um, I thought not necessarily uh, not necessarily advocating for the way that I wanted things to be uh, as a uh, openly gay person. And so I wanted to understand a little bit more about their uh, theological underpinnings and how that played out in the political sphere. So that was a way to study that as well. Got it. So it seems like you've been breaking molds and barriers, you know, your entire life. You, you know, obviously coming out is openly gay. And uh, and that's something that a lot of people are proudly doing now because so many pioneers have, you know, obviously paved the way for it to be, you know, more confident in who you are and, and really just being transparent. For you, when you had to experience that, especially growing up in the South, when you first had to, you know, make that decision, what was that like for you? Did you come out and only tell your mom? Um, did you come out and tell no one for the first couple of years? Or I guess that's not really coming out. What was that like in your uh, in your sphere? Yeah, well, you know, it was uh, it was different back in the day for sure. Um, now it's a great thing that it is. I think largely much much easier and you know much better understood and there's more role models and things like that. But yeah, at the time, uh, I, I did tell my mom, um, mostly because I, you know, I was still living at home. I was 13 when I came out to her. And so I realized that I was, and, and there was no such thing as the internet. So there was no way for me to get information in any way, uh, unless I was getting things in the mail, like, you know, gay magazines or whatever, which my mom would see. And so I basically had to bring her into that. Uh, otherwise, um, there was just not, not going to be any, 
information at all about being able to sort of make make sense of things or learn or learn about this identity. Um, so that there was a logistical challenge to it. But yeah, I mean, back then in this little town um, and sans internet, it was about um, a good somewhere between one and two years before I ever met another gay person. Wow. And, and so was this in, no, I guess, when did you decide to um, really try to pursue? Because I think when you, and this is just my opinion, but when you're that young, do you obviously know that you're gay or is it like, Hey, I'm thinking that I am, but because like you said, you don't have a lot of information yet, right? So you're kind of trying to decide if you are or you aren't. Like, at what point did you feel like, hey, I found my tribe and I know that this is where I'm supposed to be in life and this is who I'm supposed to be in life? Yeah, well, you know, I think... I think in all honesty, a lot of the uncertainty that people feel about their sexuality is not actually uncertainty about their sexuality. It's uncertainty about, do I want to deal with all the baggage around it? Uh, <laughs> you know, that that's next. often because, you know, I think for most of us, once you hit puberty, you kind of know what you like. <laughs> and right. so Very uh, true. I think that uh, I think that for many people, the, the struggle is like, oh, well, you know, can I keep this down? Can I, you know, can I sort of reroute myself to focus on other things or, or whatever. Um, it, but it's, it's more about how to navigate the sexuality rather than the sort of objective fact of one's sexuality. Um, but for me, I was, uh, <laughs> I was, and I think am, uh, probably a little, uh, tending toward, um, self-certainty and at times self-righteousness. So I'm like, I'm not going to, I'm not going to bend myself for other people. That's ridiculous. They'll have to bend themselves for me. <laughs> so I, uh, I, I was not, uh, I was not having it. Uh, the idea that I would, um, you know, cover anything up. Yeah, no. And, and I hope that somebody listening or watching this, obviously we all have, um, these conscious self-conscious beliefs, right. About ourselves and who we should be or who we shouldn't be. But just like you said, it's normally the outside world and what comes with it of if we really feel like we can deal with it. Um, so I hope that, you know, your story could help somebody else to say, ah, I really do identify with that point. And, and, and maybe, you know, it's time for me to make X decision, whatever that might be. Right. And so, um, let's let's talk about entrepreneurship and how you really started to become because now you've done TED Talks, right? You've been featured in some of the largest publications. Like at what point did you decide you really want to go all in on this entrepreneurship world? Um, and then also, like, what was your first entrepreneur endeavor that you were actually able to manifest and, and turn into a real business? Yeah, so. My path to entrepreneurship was uh, a little bit circuitous. I was not, you know, once once I got past being <laughs> being a kid, uh, when I entered into adult life, mostly I was just thinking that I would have regular jobs. Um, but the challenge that I ran into was that often all the regular jobs that I attempted to have just kept not working out. <laughs> so I was a newspaper reporter and then I got laid off and then, you know, I couldn't really get any other jobs in in print journalism because that was an industry that was kind of collapsing. And then I um, went to work for political campaigns and that was cool. But then the candidates I worked for lost. <laughs> so I, I sort of had to keep coming up with new things and reinventing myself. And eventually I ended up 
running a nonprofit for a couple of years, which was a really small, very scrappy nonprofit. It was a bicycling advocacy nonprofit. And in the process of running this this little tiny enterprise, you kind of have to be a utility infielder. I mean, you have to do everything because there's nobody else that's going to do it. And I had a revelation at a certain point that I was like, oh, God, you know, this is literally like being an entrepreneur. Like, I, I you know, I sort of feel like I have my own business. And it enabled me to realize that I actually was kind of in training in that way. And so I, if I wanted to, I could start my own business. And so eventually I decided that that is what I would do. Got it. And what was, did you have when you were, let's call it 21, 22, did you have a dream of the business, even though you started out as a journalist and then working for politicians and they, did you have a dream of that dream business for you? You just didn't know how to pursue it or were you just like, ah, I'm going to, you know, I'll know it when it comes to me. Yeah, no, I mean, it, it didn't even occur to me to be an entrepreneur. Um, I, what I was, what I originally wanted to do was just stay in academia and become a professor. But that, that was sort of the first roadblock that I had was I finished my master's degree and then I applied for doctoral programs, but I didn't get into any of them. So I was like, wow. all right, I guess I'll try something else. So that was what led to journalism. And then I'm like, great, I'll be a journalist. And honestly, if, if my career had progressed you know, the way I wanted it to, I probably would still be a journalist. I would, you know, hopefully by now be like an editor of the New York Times or something cool like that, but didn't work out that way. I got laid off. And um, so I, I had to regroup. So it really was not even a glimmer in my eye. It was a much more an emergent property, I guess you could say, that I realized at a certain point I could be an entrepreneur. Yeah. And you mentioned something a little bit earlier. You said, I kept having to reinvent myself, right? Which is over the last two years, depending on when somebody's watching or listening at this, obviously this pandemic has made a lot of people have to reinvent themselves. When you were early on, do you, I guess nowadays being an entrepreneur, it feels like every single day you almost have to reinvent yourself. But when you early on, um, when you were going through that, hey, I'm getting laid off. Hey, I don't really know where I'm supposed to be. You know, it, it doesn't feel like anything's working for me. Was there any strategies or any things that you did to be able to get back up on the horse sooner rather than later? Yeah, I mean, obviously, it is a really frustrating and demoralizing experience when you're aiming at something and then it's just like, nope, sorry, that's not going to work. Um, so, I, I think that the the most important thing that I did, I mean, first of all, uh, necessity is quite powerful, right? Um, I, I realized that I had to figure something out. I mean, when I was laid off as a reporter, I had bills to pay. I needed to, you know, there was just, there was like literally no way that I was going to have to go home and like live with my parents or something. I mean, I was fortunate in that I knew I was not going to be homeless. My parents would always let me like sleep in my childhood bedroom, but hating my little town as much as I did, uh, that was not going to be something that I was going to let happen. And so I had to really scrap for it. So actually my, my first sort of entrepreneurial venture in many ways was not exactly being an entrepreneur, but it was being a freelance journalist, which is something that I did for about six, six or eight months uh, before working, before getting a, a job on a political campaign. And being a freelance journalist is, is actually, I think, a, a really wonderful exercise in entrepreneurship because 
you have, you know, like an entrepreneur, you have to understand your client perfectly. Your client is an editor. So what are they going to be interested in? If they are interested, they will buy it. If they are not interested, they won't. You, uh, you get to uh, eat what you kill. And you have to attune yourself very, very quickly to the market needs as a result. And so that was, that was quite an educational process for me to, uh, to move forward and, and to really sort of take that in. Yeah, absolutely. And you do definitely have to understand who your market is. And it's crazy how many people they want to get into entrepreneurship, but they don't know who they're willing to serve. Right. And they don't know how they can serve them and how they can serve them at the highest level. They don't know what their pain points are. Um, And that's something that I didn't know when I first got into entrepreneurship. Right. I'll be honest. I didn't know that until I started getting into things like funnels and uh, click funnels and the education and then understanding your avatar and all these other things. So I think that that's very important that you brought that up because you have to understand. And when you say necessity, you know, I love what you said where I, I need it to be able to pay my bills. But you can also look at it from another standpoint necessity like does people do people need what you have to sell because if they don't just because you love it or you like it if your client doesn't need it uh, you're probably not going to stay in business very long you might be seasonal yeah that's that's exactly right i mean ultimately there's uh, there is a real meritocracy that i love in entrepreneurship because you know at the end at the end of the day are you are you selling something that that people desperately want you know is is it is it meeting a real need and if it is um, and you're able to successfully convey it to those people then you will make it work but no matter no matter how much um, you know, you care about something. If it's a vanity project, then it's really not going to go anywhere. You know, if it's all about you instead of all about the customer. So it, um, it sort of implies that you have to have a real sensitivity to others' needs in order to succeed, which I, I think is quite powerful. Yeah, absolutely. Now you've been, a, it feels like you're still a journalist at heart. Right. Even though you're an, a professor, because for anybody who wonders now, what do you exactly do for your clients now? What do you do for your profession? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's true that in, in many ways I have found a different way of uh, being a journalist and kind of manifesting that. Certainly, uh, a lot of how I spend my time is writing, whether it's writing books or writing articles. Uh, I host a weekly interview show for Newsweek, which is a video interview show, but nonetheless, you know, you're asking questions to people, kind of kind of like you're doing here. Uh, so it's pieces of of journalism, and uh, and it, it's interesting to me because. One one of the things that I think is quite fascinating about modern life is when I was a teenager, I had this whole list of professions that I thought would be cool that I might aspire to. And the, the interesting thing is that I've gotten to do almost all of them. But also the fascinating thing is that most of them have become demonetized. Um, it becomes really hard. Like, it's like you can do them. You're just not going to make money from them. And so the challenge becomes... It used to be, oh, how do I break into this so that I can, you know, get paid doing it? Now it's like, well, anybody can do it. Anybody can start a blog or whatever. But the real question is, how do you, how how can you get smart enough that you can create the back end so that you can make money? Um, as uh, as I, I talk about in one of my books, it's it's not about making money from something. It's about making money because of something. 
Mm. So what is that thing? What have you learned on how let's just use a blog, for example, because a lot of people are still interested in the blogging world. Obviously, now there's more video platforms where you can do video blogs. But in the blogging world, have you found what has what has made some people successful for monetization versus other people not being successful? Have you found any tips yeah, well, you know, in, in many ways, this is actually like kind of what, what one of my books, uh, Entrepreneurial You, is about. Uh, the subtitle, it's uh, Monetize Your your Expertise, Create Multiple Income Streams, and Thrive. And so what I do in the book is I actually break down, basically each chapter is about a different pathway that people can use to make money, whether it's blogs or podcasts or online courses or membership communities or, you know, coaching or whatever. And really try to understand, all right, for people who are making money from this, how are they doing it? So if we take something like a blog, um, for instance, I profiled this couple in Minnesota, the Ostroms, and they have a blog called Pinch of Yum, which is a cooking blog. And, you know, like, okay, you for a lot of people, it's like, all right, well, you're posting articles, like, how are you going to make money off of that? Um, but, you know, there's sort of the obvious things, which only are able to happen once you have a fairly significant viewership, which is you could do advertising, you could do sponsorships, etc. But there's a lot of additional things that you can do if you're smart about it. So one, for instance, you could certainly have an Amazon uh, Associates account where you get referral income if people buy products that you recommend. That's one. But there's even more than that. So like for the pinch of young, young folks... They do things like they actually have in-person workshops that they will host for their readers. And, and, you know, this is, of course, at a much higher premium price point. But if somebody's a real fan, it's like, well, hey, why don't you come out to Minnesota and have, you know, a weekend of cooking classes with the, the people behind it? That's pretty cool. They also have online courses about how you can start your own food blog or about how to do great food photography, which is, of course, an essential part of it if you want to have a food blog. Um, so, you know, they're selling all kinds of different possibilities. They have they have a, a membership community. So there's a lot of ways if you're smart on the back end that you really can create ongoing revenue streams. Yeah, absolutely. And that's something that is so huge right now nowadays because everybody's getting into the gig economy. But then, you know, that still is the demand on your time. And more people want to figure out how can they create what you would say, I guess, mailbox money without having to invest in the real estate right now because maybe they don't have those down payments. But is there anything that they can maybe put that time equity into now for the next three to six to nine months? And then, you know, on the back end, as long as just like you said, on the back end, they've set up the right system systems that they can now be able to monetize from it. And I don't think a lot of people still have even caught on to podcasts and things like that of how do they become, you know, profitable from their time on things like that. Is that something that you try to focus on teaching a lot of entrepreneurs nowadays is how they can get into the monetization side of, of being a content creator? Well, certainly my book, Entrepreneurial You, focuses on that. And to a certain extent in my coaching work, I will work with people individually. I would say that probably the biggest focus I have in terms of, you know, like really where I'm putting my my time and energy is I, I have an online course in community called Recognized Expert. And it touches a little bit on monetization, but really what it is about is about the journey to building the brand and the platform you need so that ultimately over the long term clients come to you and um it's it's basically you know how do you become a recognized expert in your company if you work uh inside a corporation or in your field and it is a process that uh that takes a lot of time and effort but 
it's hard for me to imagine something else that you could be doing that has a bigger payoff. Because ultimately, when you have a strong brand, literally almost everything else in your life becomes much easier downstream. Yeah. Give us some some key tips or key pillars on building a strong brand. And I imagine that you're talking about your personal brand. Am I right? Like, the, yeah, that's yeah. that's right. It's the course is aimed at, at people who are um, it's it's essentially for knowledge workers who understand that if if you can change the dynamic and have clients come to you and ask like, oh, will you please work with me as compared to having to like knock on doors forever, that that can, can really sort of change the trajectory of your professional life. And so, yeah, I've spent a lot of time thinking about this. In fact, my second book, Stand Out, was really focused on that question. So broadly speaking, Casanova, there's three main components. There's three pieces that kind of interact together when it comes to becoming a recognized expert in your field. And they are, I'll explain each of these in a little more detail, but they are content creation, social proof, and your network. And they all amplify each other. And the reason these are the things that are important Content creation, uh, the first one, is basically how do you get other people that you've never met to know what your ideas are? Because if you... If you're just sort of a regular, like, under-the-radar professional, the people that you've worked with directly know you're great, but you've only worked with so many people, you know? There's, like, a world out there. How do you get the ideas to travel? And, you know, certainly with referrals, it travels one-to-one, but what you need is scale. And so if you're creating content, whether it's podcasts or blogs or speeches or whatever, it enables your ideas to travel at scale so that more people can hear about you and be like, oh, I really like what this guy's saying. You know, let's let's work with him. Um, The second piece is social proof. And social proof is basically what is your credibility at a glance. In a very, very busy world, how do you make sure that people know that you're worth paying attention to? And so, you know, we were talking beforehand, you know, it's literally, you know, the case with your podcast, right? How do you get people on your podcast if they haven't heard of you? Well, I've, you know, I've had this one and this one and this one. And so all of your guests, your previous guests that you've had become part of your social proof. And it's the same thing in businesses. Oh, I've been quoted in these publications or I've had these companies as clients. That's social proof that enables people to take you more seriously, more quickly. And finally, it's your network because you need people when you are not in the room to be able to amplify your message. Yeah, absolutely. I'm I'm so glad you broke all those three things down. But I think that somebody who's listening and watching at this right now, they have no rebuttal on everything that you're saying because we know that that's where everything is going, right? You got to be creating content because content makes you more of an authoritative figure. Before, we never had access to put all of our content out there like that. So you had to just create a book, right? But that gave it to you. But now between YouTube channels and omnipresence and repurposing everything in conjunction with your book, that makes you so so much more of an authoritative figure on that topic or in that niche or, you know, in that industry. So yeah, that's, it's so, so important. Let me ask who inspires you? Because it seems like you've been an inspiration for many of people right now, when you turn for your inspiration, uh, where do you turn to? Oh boy. Well, you know, in the professional realm, I always like to give credit to um, Marshall Goldsmith, who's a, a wonderful, you know, pr- probably considered the the most famous uh, executive coach out there, sort of a legend in the field. And 
it, he's he's really a, a wonderful guy, and I've gotten to know him over the past few years because he started this kind of legacy project, which I write about in my new book, The Long Game, um, called the Marshall Goldsmith 100 Coaches Initiative, where, you know, at, at no cost, just because he, he really wants to give back, he's created this community of people to spend time with him to, you know, he's teaching everybody his methods and whatever. Um, but it's, it's really lovely. And I think comes from a, a really good place, uh, which I admire a lot. So I think that's great. And then in terms of, of other inspiration, uh, another theme that I, I talk about a lot in, in the new one, the long game is about carving out 20% time for yourself. Sort of like, uh, you know, famously Google uh, allows its employees to spend up to 20% of their time on these kind of discretionary experimental projects. And I think that we should all be doing this in our own lives and our, in our own careers. And so for me, I have for the past five years allocated a lot of that time to writing musical theater. And so uh, it's very inspiring for me to sort of try to figure out how to break into a new field and hopefully be successful there as well. Yeah, no, that's uh, I'm glad that you shared that. And that's one name that crazy enough, I've never heard of Marshall Goldsmith. So I'll be unsure. Maybe I have and I just haven't, you know, known about it. But you said, you know, he's one of the top business coaches. And uh, yeah, it's it's so valuable to have a tribe and a coach. Have you always been a product of coaching or did you just learn about coaching, you know, maybe in the last three to five years? Yeah, I mean, I I heard about coaching um you know, probably about 20 years ago when it was first becoming a thing. Um, there, oftentimes I think the, the early, uh, version of coaching was, was like more life coaching. So I knew about it. It really wasn't my world. Uh, but over time I, it was interesting. I started out, um, as what I, what I would consider, and I would talk about myself as being a marketing strategy consultant. And I still think of myself as that way in many instances. But what was fascinating for me was individuals started coming to me and asking me if I would do coaching. And originally my response, you know, I mean, I think this is kind of a, a useful lesson for, for all of us in business. And I fell prey to it too. My original response was like, no, I don't do coaching. That's not what I do. Um, but a number of people came to me and asked about it. And eventually I was like, oh, duh, you know, this is, this is like, these are the signals you need to listen to, right? If people are asking you, hey, do you do a thing? You shouldn't just be like, no, I don't do that thing. I mean, you should start to be like, oh, maybe I should do that thing if people right. are interested enough to be asking about it. So I, I came into coaching a little bit belatedly uh, because I wasn't smart enough to figure out that I should be doing it, but the market was smart enough to figure out that that might be a good thing for me to to dive into. Yeah, has it definitely been something um, that has opened up a whole new world for you, right? Like as in, now that you've been coaching other people, what is your, why do you keep doing it? What's your why behind it? Well, a, a big part of, of why I am coaching other people is that, and you know, th that's literally true in kind of a one-on-one -on -one sense. It's also true more metaphorically uh, with my online course and communities that I run, because ultimately it is very annoying to me, uh, you know, from my experience having to build up my business, that a lot of the information about how, how people actually get successful or how people actually are able to accomplish certain things, um, that information is often really closely guarded and it is not shared widely. And there are 
sort of different rules and policies in place that if you know the right people, you know how to do it. But if you don't, it's just a complete mystery. And that always struck me as unfair and unhelpful. And so I have a a bit of a mission, a sense of mission of wanting to break the process down and make it a little bit more transparent so that good people are able to have access to that information and therefore perhaps have a better chance of being able to be successful at growing their business and, um, you know, getting their ideas out there in the way that they want. Yeah. Sounds like the Dream Nation podcast. That's right, my man. Yes. (laughs) Absolutely. This has definitely been a phenomenal conversation. Let me, I just have one final question. I always ask people if they could go back and change anything, that one thing, uh, what would they change? And they would always, you know, the feedback that I got more times than not was, you know, I wouldn't change anything because it's made me who I am, which I, you know, I definitely respect, but I always call a little bit of BS because I feel like we would all change something if we could, right? And I've learned to rephrase the question. And now I ask if there was one thing that you wish that you would have implement it sooner to accelerate your path on your journey, your dream to where you are today, what would that one thing be? Yeah. So when it comes to implementing sooner, something that I have become really keenly aware of is the importance when it comes to this question that we were talking about before about how do you create multiple revenue streams in your business? How do you build relationships with your with your network, your audience? Um, I was and am a big believer in the power of email because social the noise level on social media is just so enormous. And I think we really do ourselves a disservice if we are primarily relying on that as our vehicle to connect with people. And yet so many of us are. And so I would be... Uh, if I if I was choosing something to implement sooner, it would certainly be to focus in more intently and strategically earlier on in building an opt-in email list. That is something that is really crucial to the success of my work today. And I, I think that I probably would have been, you know, even that much more better off if I had uh, focused on building it sooner. Love it. Love it. Well, again, as I said, Miss Dory, this has been a phenomenal conversation and I want to be the first one, if no one else has told you today, to say thank you and I appreciate you. We'll make sure that we put the links to your books and your community in the show notes. But for anybody who wants to stay directly connected with you, tell us where can they find you at? Yeah, thank you, Casanova. I appreciate it. For folks who want to stay plugged in and um, and perhaps uh, dive into a, a, an interesting resource. I have a, a free uh, self-assessment that's connected to my newest book, The Long Game, uh, and you can download it for free, and also it'll get you on my email list. Uh, it is a The Long Game Strategic Thinking Self-Assessment, so it actually helps walk you through the process of how to apply a more strategic lens to your life and your career, and folks can get it for free at doryclark.com slash thelonggame. Cool. Well, thank you again. I appreciate all of your time and your wisdom. And just as you said, Dream Nation, you got to take action uh, because if you do not take action, that dream that you have, and we all have a dream, it will only merely be a fantasy. That's all for this one. We'll catch you on the next one. That's all we got for this episode. Thank you for sticking around. That truly means a lot to me. And hopefully that means that we delivered massive value on this one. If you haven't already, the way that you could say thank you 
to myself and the team is just by heading over to iTunes and leaving a review and a rating. That's what iTunes loves to see. That's how we get out there even more. And I would definitely, definitely be grateful for it. I know the team would as well. Do me a favor and head on over to dreamnationpodcast.com. That's where you're going to be able to find all of the resources that we talked about in today's episode, as well as more exclusive content. And you'll also be able to sign up to our email list where we have more exclusive content. And we always love to hear the feedback from you all because you're our tribe. So remember, in the dream we trust, we'll see you on the flip side. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.